Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. Time for another edition of Political Rewind on Wednesday, August 18th. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks so much for joining us, as always, uh, for our show today. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my partner on the Wednesday shows, is with us. And Greg, I haven't asked you for a few weeks, and our listeners are always interested in knowing what's the progress on your book? Are you finished with it? Do you have a publication date yet? What's going on, Greg? Well, we are deep into the editing process, uh, but apparently over the last few days, the publisher has released the, the pre-order date and the website and everything, so you can order it on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Um, if you Google flipped in the word Greg Bluestein, I haven't advertised it quite yet because my agent, my publisher say, <laughs> give me the high signs. So they didn't even tell me that it was coming out, <laughs> but here it is. And it'll be out early next year in time for the 2022 election cycle. Greg, I, I, Greg, I'm sorry, but I have bad news for you. You did just advertise it. Uh, <laughs> and I looked it up on Amazon and you're right. It's there without a cover. A photo flipped how Georgia turned purple and broke the monopoly on Republican power. Well, congratulations on being close to uh, getting that set to go. Thank you. We're also joined today by Professor Adrian Jones, a professor of political science and the director of the pre-law program at Morehouse College. Uh, Adrian, it's a real pleasure to have you back with us. Thank you so much and good morning to everyone. Two state legislators join the show today, Representative Chuck F. Stration, a Republican from Gwinnett County. And Chuck, uh, we always like having you on the show today. We'll be really interested in hearing your observations as a member of the House Reapportionment uh, Committee as the process is, well, we're not ready for the special session, but I assume it's fair to say, Chuck, that with the data now in, you all can begin kind of you know, looking at some ideas of, of redistricting, redrawing the maps, yes? Well, thank you so much for having me, Bill. Yeah, the first meeting of the House uh, Reapportionment and Redistricting Committee has been set for the end of August. The uh, data was a little delayed in its release this year due to COVID-19, but uh, we do have the data now, and the committee is uh, going to be meeting. Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat from Decatur, is back with us as well today. Um, Mary Margaret, uh, you have had a pretty safe, I think it's fair to say, safe district over there in Decatur for quite a while now. I assume, and maybe I'm wrong, there's no reason to think that there's any way to draw your map so that it's harder for you to keep getting reelected. I don't choose to assume anything in a reapportionment uh, session. <laughs> uh, drawing uh, Decatur in with uh, Coney County would be hard to do, but uh, I've oh. seen uh, other things happen that are very strange. So uh, I'm hopeful. Uh, I do. DeKalb County is very solidly a Democratic county. Um, everything around me is, uh, I think my district uh, was won by President Biden almost 70%. Decatur was won by mm -hmm. President Biden 86%. So, um, but there's nothing safe in reapportionment, and we're all facing it with a lot of energy and expectation and some trepidation. 
Well, we're going to talk about it in a little while, particularly the public hearings that were held in locations around the state where citizens got a chance to tell the members of both the Senate and House Reapportionment Committee their attitudes about what they'd like to see happen. But I think we should start today, Greg, with uh, looking at this very sobering milestone. I, I said on the show, it's interesting, just on Monday, that for a while, when the virus seemed to be dying down, that we were fortunate in that it looked like Georgia had stalled below one million uh, of verified cases of COVID. And yet, here we are uh, on Wednesday, and here's how the story uh, was reported in uh, the AJC by Scott Truby. The state of Georgia on Tuesday surpassed 1 million confirmed coronavirus infections since the start of the pandemic. The somber milestone undercounts the true toll of the disease because of testing gaps and other factors and comes amid a vicious fourth wave that threatens to surpass the previous three. Georgia's hospital network is swamped, facing its highest count of COVID-19 patients since early February, and many are resorting to emergency measures to cope. Deaths are also climbing. Greg, this is a situation that it's mind-bending to think we've fallen back to a worse place than we were last summer. It's grim indeed, and, and, and you're right. I mean, the statistics show we're back to maybe January levels right now, and in some senses we're threatening to go back to levels that we haven't seen since last summer, especially when it comes to the inundation of Georgia hospitals, and they're having to take emergency measures. Uh, and at the same time, these hospitals are also dealing with whether or not to va- whether or not to require vaccinations for their healthcare staffers because they don't want to lose any healthcare staffers to sicknesses and illnesses. And so it's a very tough time right now. The governor's under increasing pressure to do more. Um, we, we reported earlier this week, of course, that he announced a, a sort of an impromptu state holiday on the Friday before Labor Day to encourage state public health, uh, public employees, I should say, to get their vaccinations if they haven't done so already. And he's he's funding more healthcare staffers and he is uh, expanding some regional hospital bed capacity. Uh, but there's still some other steps that public health advocates and others are encouraging him to take to to stem the spread of this disease. Yeah, uh, Georgia still has one of the lowest rates of uh, fully vaccinated people of any state in the country. Uh, Adrian, I should ask you, because one of the concerns is what's going to happen, what's already happening with public schools coming back into session. I think we've had something like 4,000 positive cases reported across the state, which isn't really a high number when you think of the number of students we have in K through 12 grades. Nevertheless, it is a place where the spread is happening. Adrian, on college campuses, there are concerns, too. Give us a quick look at what you're doing with classes starting tomorrow. How is Morehouse responding? Well, Morehouse has a mask mandate and has asked all students and faculty and staff to be vaccinated. Uh, they have a testing protocol. And then this morning, I learned that we have a bracelet protocol where you can obtain a bracelet in red or yellow to give an indication about whether or not you want to be approached closely, whether you're social distancing or not. Um, So I personally am going to go pick up one of those bracelets today and um, hope that people are willing to abide by the regulations so that we can have a smooth school year and students will be able to be in attendance. Are you apprehensive about uh, being exposed to the virus? 
Uh, indeed, I am. Um, you know, I am vaccinated, so I'm assuming that I'm going to be well protected. I have re-upped on my supplements and um, put some thought into you know, drinking my water and getting my sleep and trying to make sure that I keep my immune system um, healthy. And hopefully other people on my campus are taking similar action so that we can be protected and have a strong and productive school year. Mary Margaret, um, you and Chuck, I'd love to bring into this conversation and start with you, uh, Mary Margaret. Uh, there, you know, on the show, maybe it was this week, but I think it was last week, I asked the question, where's Kathleen Toomey been in all this, the director of public health for the state of Georgia? She's well-respected in her field, um, but we have not seen her out front. It's Governor Kemp who's been the uh, the spokesperson of how and how the state's dealing with uh, coronavirus. And what's interesting about that is he's under intense political pressure. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Whereas a Kathleen Toomey as a public health official uh, could speak to this, there would still be pressure on her politically, but it's not the same as Kemp taking the heat. Uh, Dr. Toomey appeared with uh, Governor Kemp this week when he announced his uh, September 3rd holiday. And um, I believe she's there. There, There's a split opinion among folks. Uh, of course, I come from a, uh, the CDC district and the Emory Healthcare District, so I'm a very um, health conscious. And City of Decatur reinstated its mask mandate uh, this week. There's some controversy about whether or not she's been aggressive enough, whether I don't believe she's had the political freedom to say everything she wants to say. But others are very critical that she should be out there risking and saying, in effect, I have to say this whether the governor wants me to or not. I think that's a very strong political request of her. But um, I also think, just like um, Dr. Bird in Washington, I believe Kathleen Toomey took this job knowing it might be the end of her uh, public health, long public health career. I think it's not a job that would somebody in the beginning of their public health career would have uh, appreciated its opportunity. I think it's been more a detriment to her professionally than, uh, but she is, uh, she is respected. She is a scientist and those that say she should be more aggressive and more visible um, are not considering fully the political realities of her position, I fear. Well, I, I think that Governor Kemp and Dr. Toomey are clearly continuing to promote vaccination and are taking the Delta variant very, very seriously. What we've seen from the administration is, uh, with this announcement this week, uh, providing a st an incentive to state employees to be vaccinated, working to support providers to ensure that there's adequate capacity for the need, shows just how seriously this is being taken. And and, and after the media reports that have been referenced here, I think there was a clear explanation that Dr. Toomey's been working behind the scenes, communicating directly with providers and doing things that may be outside of the public spotlight, uh, but that she remains very engaged and uh, that she and the governor continue to work very well together. Um, I think that, that uh, the state's response is, um, has been uh, under the circumstances has been very appropriate, and I appreciated the governor's announcement and his continued leadership uh, that we saw this week. I have to respond. The, the governor, do we know how many state employees are not vaccinated? Do we even know that number? 
what is the specific goal that the governor has in giving a holiday to state employees allegedly requesting they get a vaccination? It seemed to me a, a symbolic gesture, but I feel that there's not going to be any way to quantify whether that is a helpful gesture. There are 100,000 employees, basically. How many of them, do we have any idea how many are vaccinated? Uh, I would like to see the governor be more aggressive. I think he is clearly charting a middle road, a middle road between the Texas and Florida stance and uh, the mandates of, but we, we, 10% of our population has been diagnosed. And we're, the data that came in this week that we have more deaths than births in 118 counties of Georgia uh, clearly shows us that the death rate in Georgia is very serious, which follows again our lack of vaccination percentage success. Adrian? I guess I want to follow. I guess I want to follow that by asking. The governor also announced that he would add healthcare staff. Do we have vaccinated healthcare staff who are unemployed available who are willing to work in these conditions? Um, I think that's very important. I mean, it's a great announcement, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get uh, the added care. And I feel much like you know we're where we were last January, but the governor doesn't from my perspective, seem to have um, the suitable amount of alarm, uh, particularly where elementary school students are going back to school and they cannot be vaccinated. Chuck. The, the way I see, yeah, the way I see it is we have a real, uh, there's been a real difficulty that we've seen nationwide to convince 30 year olds, 40 year olds, uh, people in, in, um, uh, middle age that it's important for them to be vaccinated. And I think that really making the case and providing opportunities where possible within state government to make that as easy as can be is making great progress. This is an incredibly complex issue that also includes privacy concerns and uh, and a host of, of other considerations that have to be given. And I think that under the circumstances, the governor's leadership is appropriate and uh, and the steps that have been taken are really getting toward that issue of getting folks in their 30s and 40s to take this seriously and to get the vaccine. So you've all really uh, uh, given us a lot that we can talk about here. Greg, I do want to, uh, uh, first of all, we should point out, Greg, that, uh, yes, the governor has uh, uh, earmarked $125 million, it was what Adrian was talking about, to uh, hire healthcare workers, primarily in rural areas of the state where the hospitals are really overrun. She does raise an an interesting point as to whether hospital workers are available and want to go into those areas uh, at this point. Um, but, 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 But then I also want to add to this, and you certainly should weigh in on this as well, um, it's true that that Kemp has not been Greg Abbott in Texas or Ron DeSantis in Florida. And there's an odd way in which, as the virus, especially in Florida, has become so rampant, Georgia continues to kind of get a lucky break. Yes, the numbers are expanding dramatically, uh, but we're not Florida right now. And the question is, at what point, if we don't take other measures, as some people suggest, is this going to continue to get out of hand? Who knows the answer to that, Greg? Yeah. And in terms of the first question, professor's question, um, there is a severe staffing shortage around the nation, especially when it comes to nurses. And I asked that question at the press conference Monday. I said, how are you going to find nurses? 
So of these staff, of the staff increase, only a portion of that in, involves nurses and, and frontline <clears throat> medical workers. There's also janitorial staff and phlebotomists and other other support staffers who play a, a, a pivotal role, but but aren't necessarily the the first first line healthcare providers that some of these communities need. Um, and a lot of them are temp workers who come from. Uh, well, they, they come from Jackson uh, uh, Temporary health, health Staffing Agencies, um, but there's not that many traveling nurses left who, who, are, who, are, who are not accounted for right now, right? There's just there's a severe health uh, staffing shortage that all the hospital systems are, are grappling with. And um, so that's something that's being accounted for. And on the second part, uh, I think Representative Oliver hit it, hit it on the head when she said Kemp is trying to take a middle ground because we forget, you know, we, we see a lot of pressure on him to do more and to be more aggressive. But in the Republican world, especially when you get out in the ex out in the rural Georgia, I mean, the first thing that these candidates are talking about is bashing mask restrictions. It is like the first word out of their mouth sometimes at, camp at campaign stops. And so there is definitely an atmosphere there where they're wishing Kemp did more to restrict masks. They're wishing Kemp would ban private organizations, private companies, from requiring masks, uh, uh, from requiring vaccines, they they wish that he would stop try to stop school districts from requiring masks. So there is that pressure on him, and of course he's he's facing um, primary challenges. Um, so th there's always that sort of element out there too, where where he's he's got to keep one one head, uh, one eye over his own shoulder when it comes to this stuff. Um, Chuck, I want to turn to you, but before I do, I want to make a, a small correction. I said that we've had 4,000 reported positive cases in uh, of students and staff in Georgia schools. It's 4,000 in Metro Atlanta. Metro There's Atlanta. still a huge number beyond that, uh, but but so far it hasn't been uh, the kind of ramp, rampant outbreak that some people fear could still happen. Chuck, the governor has over and over again urged people to be vaccinated. He has said, I'm vaccinated, my family's vaccinated, we think it's a smart thing to do, it makes us feel safer. But it's an individual choice. I always, the governor says, want to emphasize that. Here's what uh, Professor Jody Guest, who was on our show just last week, uh, said to the AJC to Scott Truby in the AJC article, and by the way, she's not only a professor of epidemiology, but she's the vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at uh, Rollins School of Public Health. Here's a quote, Chuck. The conversation that this is about individual risk does not apply to infectious disease. The decision not to be vaccinated and not to wear a mask affects the people around us negatively. So, Chuck, speak to this notion, and it's really a Republican more than a Democratic notion, that we should all be free to decide for ourselves whether we feel we should be vaccinated, because if we want to take the risk, it's perfectly appropriate. It's part of our individual freedom. Chuck? This, uh, this pandemic has presented all kinds of really what was otherwise unthinkable questions and, and challenges before March of, of last year, I would say. And uh, we have always, I think in this country, promoted the need for individuals to make decisions with their health care providers about what's best for them, particularly when we have new technology that's being uh, used and we are so grateful for these vaccines. I, I am so incredibly grateful for the fast pace with which these vaccines have come to be available to all of us. But still, 
healthcare providers and patients can make what, can make the decisions that are best for them. And I think that that's uh, important to recognize. There is nothing um, uh, there is nothing about public health concerns and considerations, particularly when we talk about social distancing and other safeguards, uh, the wearing of masks, the um, the uh, other considerations that we have in place to to uh, to make sure that folks can make decisions that are best for them. They can limit their potential for exposure, and uh, and also that doctors' data-driven determinations uh, by healthcare providers and their patients um, are still maintained. And uh, and I don't see any inconsistency or any problem with that. I have Adrian. to push back and say that. I mean, we have years of getting vaccinated before school, um, and this isn't just a personal protection issue. This is, am I safe at work such or at school such that when I go home to the rest of my family or community, am I spreading a virus? Um, and in my opinion, you know, as a political scientist, this really isn't politics. This is science. And um, the point is to maintain the economy, keep people healthy, and come down from this uh, million, um, we have a million cases right now. I mean, this is not personal choice, in my opinion. If Georgia has uh, been in, diagnosed, 10% of us uh, diagnosed with the virus, I'm estimating that the Georgia General Assembly members, 236, 180 House, and 56 senators, it's, cl- it's closer to a third to a half have been uh diagnosed. And the fact that we have had no deaths, I think, is a, is a miracle given our, our age population. Chuck is on the younger end, but I'm a little bit more typical of the older end of the General Assembly members. The fact that a third to half of us have been infected uh, says that we've not been the most careful, that we've not been the most safe, and that we are reflecting a population that may be a little bit too stubborn. The arguments to get a vaccination that I have seen other people make that the Governor Kemp has not made is that in a public, not only in a public health emergency, but in our day-to-day lives, we have the obligation to love our neighbors. It is not a selfish decision of personal freedom when you have a public health emergency. Uh, The faith-based arguments I've seen in, in my church and I've seen from other denominations about caring for each other in a time of crisis, um, I would like to see the governor do that, more of that, uh, a more appeal to uh, our faith-based notions of caring for each other. We, I went to a COVID memorial service last week led by family survivors that had a very big impact on me. There are so many families out there with 18, 19,000 deaths that are suffering in a way that most of us have, have avoided. The 236 members of the General Assembly have not had a death. Statistically, given the level of infection that we've experienced, we've been lucky. Mo- many Georgians have not been lucky, and we need to care for each other more. Uh, by the way, Greg, we, we've talked about it on the show. Uh, the United States Supreme Court 
uh, issued a ruling in 1905 that's right in line with what Mary Margaret is suggesting. In the case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts, they said the state of Massachusetts had the right to require vaccinations against smallpox, despite the fact that a a minister had sued the state, claiming that it was a violation of his religious freedom and individual uh, liberty. So it's interesting. There's a court case that uh, has been used and will continue to be used as people challenge uh, requirements in some areas of the country for vaccines. One last thing, Greg, and then we got to get to a break. I, I, I sort of have this fantasy. You know, um, movies and TV series about alternative realities are incredibly popular. Um, you know, what if the Soviets had land, put a man on the moon before the United States, whatever. So I had this thought, if, if, and, and I think it speaks to how this has become such a horribly partisan problem. What if, when, when President Biden took office, what if he and Donald Trump, I know it's a fantasy, had agreed they should come together and they should and Biden should say, thank you, President Trump, for the extraordinary work your administration did in getting a vaccine for all of us. And if Trump had said, yes, President Biden, and now it's time for the people of this country to listen to you on getting vaccinated. It it, it the fact that that could not possibly happen in this environment it strikes me as saying a lot about how how politics has been the worst infection of all that's a good line and you're exactly right we'd have a different landscape there, there's always going to be anti-vaxxers uh, but it would be dramatically different right now if if you could if you, this issue wasn't politicized I think we saw that we talked about that poll a few days ago but the PPP poll the public policy polling poll that showed, that uh, only three percent of people who have not gotten vaccinated see uh, give give Joe Biden a, a high performance review. That tells you how politicized this issue is. All right, we got to get to our first break in the show. We're going to come back and we're going to start talking about the reapportionment process, which is approaching uh, in the fall at some time. Uh, we'll do that and more after these messages. <laughs> Morehouse College's Professor Adrian Jones, uh, State Representatives Mary Margaret Oliver and Chuck F. Stration and Greg Bluestein join me for today's uh, Political Rewind. Uh, Chuck F. Stration, you're on the House Reapportionment Committee, of course. And let me stipulate, as we head into this conversation, that we know full well that drawing new maps is always, always a partisan exercise. It was true the last time Democrats controlled the state house under Roy Barnes, Governor Roy Barnes. It's been true since Republicans have uh, taken charge. And there's no question that politics will again play a role coming up. So let's stipulate that going in. Uh, Chuck, there were committee, uh, the, the reapportionment committee, I think joint committees, uh, uh, listen to citizens in different town meetings around the state. Let me just play you one soundbite from a meeting that took place down in southwest Georgia. Um, this is, um, I don't have his name in front of me right now, but this is someone from Albany and what he says about what he'd like, Benny Hand, Sam just told me, say, telling the committee what he'd like to see happen. It is my hope that the process will ensure that our community representatives are kept intact. Uh, and so I'm concerned that the process is not gerrymandered uh, to dilute the strength and voice of well-established communities. I hope this process does not lend credence 
to the often repeated statement that my vote doesn't count because they will do what they want to do. And so I end by echoing the sentiments of others that after, after the census data has been received and we have a clearer picture of the numbers, that we again be given an opportunity to address this committee and address the work that is going on. Chuck, um, reporters for the Georgia News Lab and GPB News uh, tracked the 289 people who were part of 10 hearings across the state. Uh, and here were the comments in order of importance, the top of them. Fairness, public input, transparency, uh, a view toward race and ethnicity, and it goes down from there. What did you learn in uh, hearing what the citizens of the state had to say? Well, first of all, Bill, I just want to cover some of the historic um, redistricting process that you briefly referenced a moment ago. You know, over the past 30 years, uh, when there was Democrat leadership at the state capitol, the maps were held to be uh, disenfranchising of voters. And uh, federal courts ultimately redrew the maps in the 90s and in the 2000s. I think many of uh, the listeners maybe remember in early the early 2000s when Governor Barnes was in office and the, just the egregious maps that were proposed blatantly um, disenfranchising voters as was ultimately held by the courts. And just to push back on what you said a moment ago, in 2011, the Republican-controlled General Assembly passed maps which for the first time in Georgia history were approved uh, the congressional maps, state house and state senate were all approved by the uh, Department of Justice, which at the time it was President Obama was in office, Attorney General Eric Holder was leading the Department of Justice, and all of those maps were approved. In 2015, there was a redraw of some of the districts, which uh, Stacey Abrams, a member of the House at the time, voted in favor of. So I, I would disagree with you. To, uh, Republicans have shown uh, historically that uh, the maps that they, while they've been in power at the Capitol, they put forward maps that are in real contrast to Democrat leadership. Now, that said, there have been, uh, we've had many town hall style meetings, the legislative uh, reapportionment and redistricting committee around the state of Georgia. And my immediate takeaways are the engagement that we're seeing from voters. These town hall meetings have been very well attended. Uh, we've seen real interest from the speakers who um, have turned out. And there's really been a wide variety of opinions that have been shared. Some are very specific as to um, counties or cities and a request that they not be split or they be kept together, that lines be placed a certain uh, way. Others have spoken more generally, I'd say, um, uh, and that's really been across the spectrum. Some have said we really like our current um, representation and we'd like uh, for that to continue into the future. Others have promoted, uh, we really wish that the parties, political parties, would be extremely competitive in districts across the state, and we'd like you to try to draw districts that yield that partisan uh, competition. Ultimately, considerations have to be given as to uh, communities of interest, uh, that districts are contiguous and compact, um, re representation that uh, has been uh, held in those districts historically, uh, and also the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, has to be considered. And so all of these considerations are made. And the final thing I'll just mention to the listeners uh, for those following this issue, reapportionment is the process of determining congressional representation in the states. 
And despite Georgia gaining about a million people in population over the past 10 years, we did not gain an additional member of Congress. The redistricting um, process is actually determining where those lines will be for the districts. And so just as listeners are following this process going forward, it's the redistricting process that will really be discussed and considered. Thank you for that. Mary clearly remember the reapportionment of Governor Burns creating multi-member districts because that's what allowed me to come back to politics after being out a good while. Um, my precincts was placed in a two-person multi-member district that was had elected a Republican from North Lake, and, and my duty, according to the democratically drawn districts, was to replace him in the General Assembly, which I successfully did. The uh, there are no Republican districts left in the North Lake area of DeKalb County, and so the world has changed. We know from reapportionment that and the litigation that's followed it is the United States Supreme Court has stepped away from from uh, declaring partisan uh, redistricting as violative of the Constitution, and everybody is dancing around that, stepping aside of the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court in upholding other election related matters to quote unquote leave it to the legislative bodies um, is going to be a reality as we go into this year's reapportionment and we will not be able to, through the courts I fear, bring lift up partisan gerrymandering as violative of the voters' rights. But it is what people think about. And people think about it and understand it in a greater level than they have in any other time in my long political career. People understand that gerrymandering to create safe Democratic districts or safe Republican districts is not fair. And there's a lot of new science out there, a lot of new demographic science and computer-related tools that's being uh, used and will be used significantly, significantly, to help determine what is fair redistricting, and I don't have a lot of confidence yet that we will have a fair redistricting process. I'm I'm concerned also because um, it is a new political environment. We're extremely politicized, and then to Mary Margaret's point, um, the regulation of redistricting has decreased. So. We cannot rely on the Supreme Court to review uh, partisan gerrymandering if it becomes egregious. Uh, We cannot rely on the Department of Justice to evaluate Georgia's maps as they might do under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act if that was still live. And unfortunately, it's looking like Section 2 is going to provide very little protection. And even if it can protect Georgians, it's going to take litigation in order to do that. Um, I would like to see town halls repeated once um, the census information has been drawn into maps. And I would like to make sure that, uh, which I'm not seeing right now, that metro areas get the number of town hall meetings that they deserve. Um, You know, my understanding is that Atlanta only got one. These are limited meetings where the entire (laughs) county cannot come at one time. And I think it's very important that people attend those meetings and be involved because otherwise we risk um, what we've seen over the last couple of months from the state legislature, which is 
uh, you know, passing limited voting laws, which I think can easily translate into passing unfair districts. Um, so uh, I'm sure Chuck's going to want to have something to say about that. But, Greg, a couple points as I pass the ball uh, to you. Uh, number one, uh, Chuck Efstration is certainly correct. Uh, Speaker Ralston, as you well know, Greg, is very proud of the fact that the last major redrawing of maps in Georgia did get uh, uh, passed muster with a, a, a Democratic administration's Department of Justice. And Ralston cites that to this day, as Chuck Efstration just did, as a sign that they will do these things as fairly as possible. But Mary Margaret Gregg also makes a great point. I go back far enough to remember the days when maps had to be drawn by hand, when data was parsed out on calculators and it took hours and hours of work. Now, as Mary Margaret says, you can push in uh, you could push a button and draw a map to your liking, and it takes you 10 yep. seconds to get the map drawn. And now we're seeing teenagers at home doing doing sample maps. But look, you know, there's been a lot of talk about <laughs> ideally how how we want these districts to be drawn in a nonpartisan fashion. But look, 20 years ago or so, Chuck Efstration and I sat in the same UGA class with a, with a famed UGA professor named Charles Bullock. And, and Charles Bullock is probably the preeminent expert on redistricting. And what does he say? He says it's the mo single most political process in the nation. And we know we know that Republicans are, are likely to make life more difficult for any number of, of legislative state legislative incumbents uh, on the Democratic side, but certainly for either Lucy McBath or Carolyn Bordeaux or maybe both. But we also know that will be a challenge given the numbers, uh, given the fact that Carolyn Bordeaux's district uh, has to shrink by about 94,000 people. Um, and so it will not be easy um, to, 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 uh, to realign those districts in a way that, that, that draws out both Carolyn Bordeaux and Lucy McBath. We'll see um, how those numbers shake out and which, which of those Democratic incumbents uh, faces more pressure. But certainly you can see with, the, with, with what Republican candidates think because they're lining up to run against Lucy McBath, not Carolyn Bordeaux. So you're seeing a number of Republican candidates who think Lucy McBath's district is the one that's going to be uh, more competitive than Carolyn Bordeaux's. Chuck, before I, uh, I have to take a break, I want to give you a chance to weigh in. Well, first of all, as I pre-order Greg's book, I want him to cite, I've known him uh, for how long. <laughs> uh, we've been great friends since college. But, but, uh, but what, I, what I think is important to note is in the early 2000s, when Democrats drew these maps that were just egregious, you could see districts that were uh, covering other parts of the state. You could not physically travel from one part of the district to the other while remaining in the district. Percentages of population were pushed to the limit so that you could have more votes in one district, less in others to get a certain partisan outcome. Voters picked up on that. That was a major issue in Governor Barnes' loss. Um, and so voters are engaged on this issue, and they follow it. And I think we've seen that with the high turnout we've had at these town halls across the state. All right. So now we're going to get to a break. But, Mary and Margaret, now you get a chance. To respect. He, Chuck F. Strayson's right. I mean, Bobby Kahn, the governor's chief of staff, uh, helped draw these outrageous maps, these multi-member districts. It did help you get reelected. But Efstration's right that to some extent it became an issue in Roy Barnes' reelection campaign. Quick comment on that before I have to take a break. If we want to talk about history, then let's go back to Jimmy Carter's book, Turning Point. When the election was uh, had to be redone, I don't know how many times when he ran for the state Senate, 
because the Quitman County probate judge was hiding the ballots and then producing them in alphabetical order. So our history is not good, but we are in a modern time right now, and people are paying attention, and the Georgia General Assembly has to understand that fairness is on the mind of voters. Greg, that's a great way to close this segment. Greg, I think both Chuck and Mary Margaret really making the same point, which is that voters are going to be paying more attention to this process than certainly they did in 2000 or 2010. And that in in and of itself is going to be an interesting pressure point to watch when we finally get redistricting moving forward, unless it's all done behind closed doors. And frankly, that's a credit to the state legislature, making these these hearings accessible, making them zoom zoomable, I guess is the verb, and making it easier for us to watch from our from the comforts of our home or our cars or wherever. All right, we got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, Mary Margaret Oliver wrote a fascinating op-ed piece for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution the other day, in which she asked fascinating questions about how the state is spending millions and millions of, do- of tax dollars to attract business. How does that process unfold, and what should we be thinking about to see how it moves forward? We'll do that after these messages. Mary Margaret Oliver, if you don't mind my reading a few of your words back to you, here's what you said in your piece uh, in the AJC. For many good and bad reasons, there is a new opportunity, an obligation to review the policies and operations of the hundreds of development authorities that operate across Georgia. The reason that you cite, of course, is all of the attention that's been paid to the Fulton County Development Authorities giving itself Uh, financial benefits. I'd rather that we let that issue lie on the table and talk about the larger questions you raise, which uh, have to do with whether or not these many development authorities across the state are doling out special tax breaks to attract business, whether they're doing it appropriately within a framework of logic and whether it needs to, they need to be looked at more carefully. Uh, you explain it to us uh, yourself, please. The world is run by bond lawyers and public finance is defined by bond lawyers and the legality around development authorities that were created in the 60s to allow uh, corporate incentives uh, or corporate welfare or tax abatements. Tax abatement is not defined anywhere in the Georgia Code And although many other states have taken a legislative approach to setting policies in relation to how the six or 700 development authorities operate, uh, Georgia has not had any public discussion in my view. We learn a lot, I've learned a lot in trying to understand this. And at the end of the uh, 2020, I pre-filed a bill that went to the Governor's Affairs Committee. I I pre-filed three bills. And we got some good hearings in relation to who has the right to stand up and object to a tax abatement. If a city in DeKalb County is lowering tax abating the property taxes of the school system, taking money away from the school system, does the school system even have a right to know or does it have a right to participate in the bond validation hearing? Yesterday, in the first day of our annexation and cityhood study committee that I have some real hope about studying these issues, I asked the participants, does the school system have a right to know 
if their taxes are being abated, i.e. lowered? And the answer was no. So what are the issues of transparency and what are the issues of equity? City of Decatur has never given a development authority, City of Decatur Development Authority has never given a tax abatement to any corporation, any business, period. Where they have not used their resources to benefit developers coming into the city of Decatur because they haven't needed to. Across state, there are areas where tax abatements are needed. It's a viable economic tool to help those areas that need development. And I'd like to just have a public discussion on the issues of transparency and equity. Who's getting the tax abatements? Do we have a list anywhere in the, in the 27 counties of the metropolitan Atlanta area? Is there a list of tax abatements? Are developers competing, one city against another city, one city against a county, for the most benefit they can get? And who does that benefit? This is a complex area. The bond lawyers understand it. A few other people understand it. But uh, I'm trying to understand it, and I'm trying to lift up these issues for discussion. So, Greg, uh, I want to get you in and everybody else as well. But but just to uh, uh, emphasize some of what Mary Margaret said for our listeners. I mean, number one, it is certainly true when a county decides, the development authority of a county decides to give a big tax break to bring a business in. Uh, it means, in many most cases, that the school district loses money. And Mary Margaret raises the question of whether they should be part of that process in helping decide whether this is an abatement that is necessary. The other thing that's important to point out for our listeners is that every tax break given to a business to attract them to come in is um, it l- raises questions about what your taxes look like in mm-hmm. response to that, Greg. Yeah, and as, as Representative Oliver indicated, Decatur is an outlier in that sense that it's not giving out these abatements because many of these abatements are going to projects in, in lucrative areas where they don't need any inducements to come build, right? And that's what my the work of my colleagues at the AJC uncovered in, when, when it comes to Fulton County. The, the phrase we keep on hearing is Wild West because there's so little oversight, there's so few organizational uh, you know, uh, regulations and restrictions. And then even when there are, these, 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 these boards tend to lie under the surface, right? We, we, don't, we don't have regular coverage of them. They're obscure. As, as Representative Oller said, only really bond lawyers understand the ins and outs of this. So it's hard for the general public to, to understand it at a visceral level. And I think there will be a very um, uh, consequential debate next year in the legislative session that Republicans will join too, looking for more oversight of these agencies that have run amok. Adrian? Uh, Just short and simple. I mean, I think it's very important that the public understand uh, where public money is going and where public money is not um, so that they can understand, to your point, about uh, what their own taxes are um, and what's happening in other areas. Um, You know, this can be political, and so I think it's something that people need to understand. So I really appreciated this article because it laid out important questions that we needed to be asking. And it also just introduces the idea of the development authority, which I think a lot of us have not thought about um, and need to have on our radar um, to understand what government is doing. Well, I just want to commend Representative Oliver for drafting an excellent op-ed. I really um uh, recommend it, highly recommend it to listeners out there to read in AJC. And I, I think Representative Oliver's concern over oversight and transparency 
uh, in this area is very warranted. Um, I look forward to joining with her to, uh, to, you know, with the hearings that she's requesting and getting additional information, but also taking action. Ultimately, we're talking about not only powers in the area of tax abatement, but the power to issue debt and uh, really um, the ability to, uh, to do these things. I think that we need to make sure there's safeguards in place to protect the public. And so uh, I commend Representative Oliver for, uh, for her focus on this. Thank you, Mary Margaret. It it is it is certainly true uh, uh, it, w- w- that this has been a bipartisan uh, issue. In other words, we have seen Republicans and Democrats uh, uh, in, in counties and municipalities around the state who have encouraged tax abatements. It isn't though this is one party or the other. It's very much a bipartisan discussion, and I've had many discussions with my Republican colleagues in the leadership position. How are you going to handle this, Texas? Texas, of all places, does not allow any abatements against any school district. And we have no law and no policy. Uh, So I think that I welcome a bipartisan discussion and some uh, ideas for how we can do a better job on these, what some people call corporate giveaways. Oh, Greg, Mary Margaret really knows how to hurt us, telling us Texas is more progressive on this issue than we are. (laughs) Oh, that hurts, Greg. (laughs) Hey, Greg, let me. Let let me. we're, We're really short, very short of time. And this, I want to mention one quick item that Mary Margaret referred to in passing. We'll talk about it more on another episode, edition of the show. Our friend Charlie Hazlett. Uh, yep. A really outstanding journalist who now runs a blog called Trouble in God's Country is the one who unearthed the fascinating data, which shows that in 118 of Georgia's 159 counties, the counties recorded more deaths than births in 2020. That is in keeping with a global trend towards fewer births than in past recorded history, Greg. And it, it's not all COVID-related, Greg. It's deserving of a lot more investigation, Greg. It's chilling, isn't it? And it shows you where the population patterns are going in Georgia as, as, as it's getting more. The, the exurbs were really what saw a lot of the growth. Bartow, Cherokee, um, Forsyth County, one of the top 10 growing counties in the nation. And so when lawmakers go and redistrict and redraw the lines, expect to see some squeeze out some more districts in those areas. All right, we are completely out of time for today's show. Greg Bluestein, Adrian Jones, Chuck Efstration, Mary Margaret Oliver, thank you so much. It is, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that you are all willing, as all of our panelists are, to take the time to help explain to our listeners what's happening in the state and sometimes across the country in politics. That's it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow with another show, of course. I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. More than ever, the CDC is recommending you should be wearing a mask indoors when you've got other people around you. And please think about getting vaccinated. Even Governor Kemp thinks you should do that. See you all tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.